Well, what type of glitter and gold grabs your heart? Isn't it true that you can tell what really motivates people? Oh, they can say A, but you can tell that they're really motivated by B. And when you sense misalignment in yourself, you end up living a dichotomous life, right? I'm saying one thing, but I know this is really true. But when you see it in other people, it erodes trust and influence. Right? I can't trust my company. I couldn't trust my parents. I didn't adopt the values of that system or my religion because they said A, but they did B. They talked out of their mouth one way, A, but when you saw them in action, it was a whole lot of B, right? And then they had to face the consequences that would happen. They lost influence. And they lost their ability to be trusted. And you left the company and you didn't adopt your parents' values because of that misalignment. They were enticed by certain glitter and gold, even though they said they weren't. See, if you and I don't face the consequences of the misalignment between our mouth and our money in particular, we'll end up facing the consequences in our relationships at home or at work. What I mean, you you hear people say this all the time. My marriage is important to me. Great. And then you look at their schedule and there's no time spent or money spent on a date night. A every year, seven days getting away with their spouse. And their mouth says marriage is important. But their money and their time is money says something different. Somebody might say, Uh, It's very important to me to be very, very generous, right? I want to be a generous person. You want to be a generous person. But then you look at the alignment of their spending, and they aren't generous people. To the community, to themselves, to their employees, there's a misalignment. And everyone around them senses that. Maybe it comes to saving. Saving, you might say, hey, I want to be a saver. I want to be prepared for a rainy day. I want to be ready for retirement. And so you say, I I really, I got a saver's heart. Okay. But do you have a six-month emergency fund? Do you have a plan for retirement that you're working toward? If you don't, then one of the spouses in your relationship is going to sense we say A, but we spend like B. Hmm. Our priorities in how we spend our time and money need to reflect the vision of what we say with our mouth. And if we don't, we end up facing the consequences in fights, losing good people in the company, and not having the kind of influence and trust we prefer. And when you face the consequences, you end up facing the under or the over. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when something becomes important to you, you either (laughs) under-focus on something that should be more important, or you overemphasize something to the exclusion of others. Now, what do I mean? Well, let's look at the over and the under. Some people overspend when they should be saving a higher priority. Other people oversave, right? There's never any money to spend. We always could save more. Some people overleverage themselves. Some people overgive. Some people overproduce, some people overprepare, some people overborrow, and you face the consequences in your marriage and relationship or department against department. We say we're about preparing, but we don't have an emergency fund. We don't have a contingency for that. 
Chad, did you as a pastor say overgive? How's that possible? Well, think of it this way. When someone gives to make up for something they've done wrong, that's not a trill heartfelt giving that's about serving other people and caring for other people as if I'm earning favor with God or making up for some secrets in my life. No, God wants generous, gracious giving. Overgiving is giving for the wrong reasons. Overspending means that there's something about spending that's out of alignment in you. Oversaving, is there something out of alignment? Overproducing, I say I wanna be a person who's about retiring and, and relaxing and being a good husband or being a good wife, but I'm always at work. I overproduce. Now, you can also fall off the other end, right? What does it mean to under? Underspend. I'm saving so much I can't ever, I feel guilty but every little purchase. Undersaving. I'm always spending money or always giving money away but not preparing for my own five-year, 10-year retirement plan. Undergiving, that's your capacity to be generous. You could give so much more. It could be a much higher priority than it currently is. Underproducing, what's underproducing? Well, it's laziness, right? It's the person who's not at work all the time. They should be producing more, making a bigger difference under-preparing or under-borrowing. So today we're gonna find that Nehemiah confronts these misalignments. People who are overdoing one thing or underdoing the other and he with conviction says, we've got to face the consequences by facing the misalignment. We need to listen like a leader and we need to lead like a leader to do it. Now Nehemiah does exactly that. I think what's so fascinating about Nehemiah is he knows If you're gonna be a good leader, you need to be a great listener. Now, the things he's gonna listen to, there are leaders on the ground in Jerusalem who could have been hearing these things, but they didn't. They were too busy in one area of their life to hear the cries of the people in other areas of their life. We need to listen like a leader because the consequences are always faced in relationships. Here's what it says in verse one of chapter five. There was a great outcry, huh? Do you hear them crying out? They see the misalignment. An outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, oh, they said something with their mouth. We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Oh, they say one thing, but the problem is they don't have enough money to eat and to live. They've got a money problem and there's a spending problem. Verse three, there were also some who said, hey, we have mortgaged our lands. We've mortgaged our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. We don't have enough money to eat with this famine. So we've had to over mortgage and over leverage ourselves. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. We're being taxed to death on our land and our vineyards. What's going on? Nehemiah is hearing people complain about money. In one sense, everybody complains about money. I wish I had more, wish I could spend more, wish I could save more. But he senses there's something going on in the community that they are saying they're in pain. The people around them are in pain financially for some reason. And so he leans in and listens. What he's gonna discover is that the Jewish leaders who've been in charge of this area, remember he just arrived from Persia, 
They are leading this community in such a way that they're so out of alignment to God's vision for the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the marketplace and the rebuilding of the city. They're causing pain to the people that they say they're trying to help. I would imagine that if you and I would listen in to our departments, if we'd say, hey, what would you change around here? You would hear people in your company, employees you have, certainly could hear it from your kids or from your spouse, they sense the misalignment and they're in pain. They're facing the consequences because of things we're doing or not doing. Misalignments between what we say is the vision, our marriage, our family, and what we're actually doing. Let me explain just a second. See, the consequences are showing up here in relationships. The next verse. It says, Now yet our flesh is as our children of the brethren. Indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery and it's not in our power to redeem them for other men have our lands and have our vineyards. Now there's consequences in the relationships. What do I mean? They're saying things have gotten so bad, we can't provide food. The things we could leverage got leveraged with our vineyards to pay for taxes. We've had to sell our kids into slavery. Now when you think slavery, think like bankruptcy law slavery. They've had to sell their kids to help pay off their debt and they can't redeem them. The word redeem means to buy them out of it, to buy back that debt that their kids are now paying off that they couldn't pay. And they're crying out. We're facing the consequences here, Nehemiah. Things are not good here. And Nehemiah's like, wow. As a leader, I need to listen to what's going on. I need to lean into what's going on and understand the problem here. And the problem is, something's out of whack in the leadership in Jerusalem that's led to people in Jerusalem selling their kids into slavery. Now the word redemption sounds like a a spiritual religious word, redemption, the redeemed, but it just means to buy back. And it's basically saying we can't buy back our kids because we don't have the finances to do it. It's actually the main message of the Bible is that God came from heaven to earth to buy us back. And to buy us back from letting things motivate us that get our hearts and our actions out of whack. And we're gonna find that Nehemiah, now that he's heard the outcry of the consequences they're facing, he's gonna confront the leaders and show that they're out of whack. And Jesus came to buy us out of the bondage we have when we're overcommitted to money, overcommitted to status, overcommitted to people's approval. And we need to be bought back, brought back to having a center or an identity that's focused on something core, God. And now we can give, spend, out of a sense of identity that's not rooted in what we wear, what we make, or what we have in an account. That's why Jesus came to redeem or buy us back. Because you and I know when you hear the outcry, it doesn't just affect one person, it affects everyone. Well, several years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who had that exact thing happen. It happened in the context of a business partnership. They decided to start a business and he and his buddy had two different approaches. He was all in and they were both followers of Jesus. 
As followers of Jesus, they want to honor each other and honor the process. He, my friend Jim, bought the business, bought the facility, and his buddy was working another full-time job and doing this on the side. Well, as things began to develop, my friend Jim discovered that his business partner was always casting a vision. We're going to be rich. We're going to make a killing. My friend Jim was running the books. He said, we're not making a killing yet, so that's great. That's a great vision. That's what we're both hoping for, but we need to make sure we get some profit coming in. Well, that made sense. But every time his partner came in the door, he had just made another big purchase. What do I mean? He just bought some new giant piece of equipment. This thing's going to make us rich. Okay, but it hasn't yet, and the last thing you bought for the company didn't bring any business. Oh yeah, but this one will. All right. Well, this continued. And as it continued, he realized his business partner was an overspender. He had visions of making money, but because this was a hobby part-time job for him, it wasn't for Jim. He was, hadn't taken a, a paycheck as the business owner in six months trying to get this thing off the ground. And while he was pulling back until things got to a good place, his business partner just kept spending into oblivion. So finally, they had to have that very difficult sit down. They had to face the consequences and say, hey, we can't keep doing what we're doing and survive. Well, his business partner was shocked when he sat down and said, listen, I think we need to bring our partnership to an end. Why? Because you keep spending money we don't have while saying we're going to be rich, you're actually acting in such a way that's making us not just rich, but more and more broke. And, and your spending is out of alignment with what the company is capable of doing right now. Well, I can't believe you'd even say that. Well, here it is in black and white. And even though they were both Christians, one of them was overly committed to the idea of being rich but not necessarily able to put the work into it. So they were underproducing but overspending. They were over-visualizing, right? Okay, positive thinking, but they weren't acting in accordance to what needed to be done to plod and work and advance the vision to get there. And so what happened? The one guy was oblivious. He thought everything was going great in the partnership, in the friendship, in the business. The other one said, not only are things not going well, but I'm facing the consequences. I haven't had a paycheck in six months because of your misalignment. Now that's kind of the idea of what Nehemiah is facing. Before he can diagnose what's causing the problem, he's got to address the consequences he's hearing and the outcry around him. And I would just encourage you and I to do the same thing. Let's take a, take a week, take a month, and just walk around and ask your employees questions. Hey, what do you think's out of alignment around here? Start listening to the voices of your kids or your spouse. Are you hearing them cry out? Why don't we ever have time? Why can't we ever do that? Why is it always no? Why do we say A and do B? When you listen like a leader and you face the consequences in the relationship, 
you can start digging and saying, God, what's going inside of me? It's causing me to underfocus or overfocus on something. And that business partner, the partnership broke up because of misalignment. Marriages break up, families break up because of misalignment. We need to not just listen like a leader, we need to confront it and lead like a leader as well. Now, Nehemiah is able to amazingly confront the problem. He immediately knows what's causing this outcry and break up, up relationships and kids being sold into slavery. He says in verse 6, I became very angry when I heard the outcry, he heard the outcry, and these words. So here's what Nehemiah knows. You lead like a leader because your alignment personally as a leader impacts your ability to influence. He says, guys, I, I heard the outcry and I want to come talk to the leaders here. Guys, we're going to have a conversation. Look me in the eye. Let's have a chat. After serious thought, how do I want to handle this? I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Or should they be silenced? And found nothing to say. Now what's going on here? Well, Nehemiah realizes that the leaders in charge have been taxing and have been charging their fellow Hebrews, that's what he means by brethren, excessive interest, what the Bible calls usury. So what is usury? So usury is when you let people borrow money from you and you charge them enough that they can never get out of bondage. Nehemiah's like, you know why people can't feed themselves? You know why people can't pay uh, their kids and buy them out of debtor's prison? It's because the leaders have put excessive taxation on them and have enacted usury. And that usury is you are charging your brethren so much money they can never get out of debt. Now it's interesting, the history of usury. In the Jewish tradition, usury is any time you charge any fellow Hebrew money. You are allowed to charge a fellow Gentiles or the Romans or Greeks interest, but not charge it to a fellow brother. So any interest was inappropriate. And the, the Muslim view on that is very similar between Muslim to Muslim. And even Christians for years through history said any interest you ever charge on a loan is considered immoral. Which is why there wasn't a lot of investing, right? Why would anyone invest with anyone if it's all risk and no reward? But that changed in the 1700s thanks to John Calvin. Who's John Calvin? John Calvin was a Christian, a thinker, a business guy who said, I don't think that's what the Bible means, that all interest is bad, because Jesus tells a parable of a servant who gets 10 talents, pieces of silver, someone gets five pieces of silver, and another person gets one. And he expects them to bring back an investment. And he rebukes the one with one talent, the poor guy, he says, you didn't even try. You should have at least 
The guy had dug it in the ground and, and left it there. You should have at least put it in the bank, Jesus says, so that I could have gotten interest. Huh. Interesting, right? Interesting. And John Calvin says it can't be that God's against all interest because Jesus expected even the poor person to bring back interest. So all of a sudden, this new teaching on usury began, which is that usury is excessive interest, interest that keeps the person you, you lend to from ever getting out of bondage. But if you apply the golden rule, if I was on the other end of this, I would be willing to take some money and pay some additional interest so I could start this business. And on your end, I'm willing to take the risk. This business might fail, but I do want some reward if it does well. And all of a sudden, there's an explosion of capital all through the world, Europe over to the America. And this idea of free enterprise capitalism really could be traced back to John Calvin unleashing this idea that all of a sudden interest wasn't inherently evil. So what's going on here with Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is confronting this idea of usury, excessive interest that's keeping the people in the community in bondage. And he says, guys, I personally showed up with a lot of money and I've been personally redeeming or buying these kids and buying these families out of debt. And you fellow leaders are causing the problem. The sooner I buy them out of debt, you're putting them back into debt. You gotta stop. He goes on in verse 10, I also... Notice the alignment. I am doing what I say. We're trying to make people freer. We're trying to help people move forward. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money. I'm lending them grain. So please, let's stop the usury. Now, how are the people going to react? Hey, we got a contract. Hey, they agreed to this. Amazingly, the people are going to do an about-face and change. Well, that's why it's a Bible story, right? Sure, sure, you have a little speech, everybody's gonna change their behavior. There's a reason why they change their behavior. Let me tell you what it is. Nehemiah has such alignment in his personal uh, interaction, his, 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 his walking out of his own conviction. What he says A and what he does B are in alignment. It is so in alignment, he's able to call other people when they're out of alignment. Here's what it says. Moreover, guys, let's not forget, I'm the governor of your province. And from the time I was appointed to be your governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year, it's 12 years. For 12 years, you've been watching how I talk and how I spend, what I say and what I do. 12 years. And during that time, neither I nor any of my brothers ate the governor's provisions. What does that mean? Well, it means under Persian law, he's been the governor, and he had the right to tax or take a portion from everyone who lived in Jerusalem. But he said, I don't want to do that. I'm going to actually make sure they have more money in their pocket. I'm gonna make sure that they don't have excessive provisions. Even though I'm owed it, even though the law requires it, I'm not gonna take it as a public official. Whew, how amazing is that? For 12 years, he has acted consistent with what he said. I'm about serving people. I'm about helping people, not lining my own 
pockets. So since the leaders have seen him do that for 12 years, this rebuke, this conviction has a sting. He goes on. What did he say? But the former governors before me, you remember what they did, right? They laid burdens. They didn't just take the portion owed them. They laid burdens of financial burden on people, on the people. They took from their bread and from their wine besides 40 shekels of silver on top of it all. Yes, even their servants bore rule of the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I wanted to treat people the way I'd be treated if our roles were reversed. Now remember, this is not some poor guy. He was coming from Susa, the capital of Persia, the ruler of the world, where he served as a cupbearer to the king. He's used to a life of luxury. And you could always have more. But he wanted to be generous. He wanted to serve. He wanted to love. And he wanted to truly be a public servant. So when he moves from Susa over to Judah or Israel, where he's now helping rebuild the walls, he has been in alignment between his mouth and his money for 12 years. And that's why he has this stinging rebuke. He's been living in a palace. He could have said, hey, I want to be paid to have a palace here in Jerusalem. He said, no, I'm here helping all of us rebuild the wall. And this guy was used to wealth. I mean, he's got this decree from the governor. He could have said, look, Persian governor says you owe me. But he doesn't. He could have said, hey, look at the kind of money I have in my bank account. This is the kind of Persian gold I'm used to. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, guys, are we about rebuilding the city? Are we about creating a marketplace for our friends and our family so that they can prosper for the future? Yeah, okay. Then it's time to do some restoring. What do I mean? Well, he says, indeed, will you sell your brethren? That's what you're doing here. Your misalignment is selling your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and they found nothing to say. And then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations? Everybody around us thinks we're a mocking stock. Restore now. Guys, it's time to just put things back in alignment. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, you know what? We will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Wow. That's why it doesn't sound real credible, right? This has got to be a made up story. It's not. Nehemiah was so in alignment that when he challenged them, they knew they were way out of alignment. And they said, for the sake of our city, for the sake of our God, for the sake of what's right, we need to get ourselves back into alignment. What does it look like for you and I to put ourselves into alignment? And what does that look like for you and I? What does it mean or what might we do if we wanted things to be back in alignment that are currently out of alignment? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that for you. I'm not sure anyone can answer that for you because I don't know what's going on in your heart. But imagine Nehemiah was sitting in front of you and said, 
what's out of alignment between your money and your mouth that needs to be dealt with? Maybe it goes back to that list. I need to restore my misalignments. Am I undersaving? And restoring it means I gotta save more. I need to rethink my spending patterns so that I'm saving like I say I want to. Does it mean I need to stop overproducing? And I need to look at my work-life balance. Does it mean I'm overgiving my time and energy in this area when I need to be giving it to a different area? I don't know what it is for you, but I know something powerful happens, like happened in Jerusalem that day, when people restore their alignment. Maybe for you it's, I haven't been giving at all. Maybe you've been growing spiritually at Horizon for the last nine months. You've been watching online services. It's been really helping you in your process. And you're like, you know what? I I haven't really ever given a a percentage of my income. I don't know. I don't want you to overgive, but I want you to undergive. Maybe you just want to pray and say, God, as I hear the outcry in my life from inside of me, from my conscience, from the relationships around me, what are the areas I might need to restore how I spend my time and spend my money so it's in alignment with what I say is true. I had a guy who did that. It was pretty amazing. My friend Steve. Steve uh, came into the office one day and said, Chad, can I chat with you for a bit? I said, sure. He said, you gave a talk about six months ago and it was about stuff having you. And I am an over-collector. And as an over-collector, I began to have to have places to overstore the things I'd over-collected. Then I had to over-insure the things I'd over-collected. And my life became so complicated that you were exactly right when you said, I wasn't free. I said, well, great. Well, awesome. He says, well, I want to tell you something. I've never been a particularly generous person. I've thought of myself as generous, but I've never really been generous. But you shared what it meant to receive the generosity of God. And I did that day. He said, I believe Jesus died. He came from heaven to earth. He died for me, for all those things that are out of alignment in me. I said, well, Steve, that is awesome. He said, it's so weird that out of that, I felt like I wanted to give to others the way God had given to me. I said, well, tell me more about that. He said, well, I feel so free inside that I started thinking about my elementary school growing up, how much it impacted me and the teachers there. I decided to write a check to my elementary school. So that is cool. He said, I thought about organizations that invested in me in my teen years and college years. And I decided to write a check to to invest in the people who had invested in me. I said, man, I am so excited to hear about the freedom in your life and to hear what God's doing. And they said, Ann, God prompted me to write a check to Horizon. I said, man, that's awesome. He said, I'm just sensing that putting myself back in alignment meant selling some stuff I've overcollected, giving some things that I have been overholding or overhoarding, and I am feeling so incredibly free. And that's what God wants for all of us, for us to live in freedom. It's one thing to have to sell our kids into to bankruptcy, slavery, like they did back in Hebrew days. But there are many of us who are walking around in slavery. We're enslaved to overspending. We're enslaved to overproducing. We're enslaved to overleveraging. God wants you to be free. And so I want to encourage you to take the 52-day challenge. 
to go through those weeks, week after week after week and say, God, what are you asking me to do? I wanna do something to bring my life back into alignment. God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. He wants you to be free. And I wanna pray that God will speak to you as you pray just simply, God, help me put my life back into alignment. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would encourage each person to align their mouth to their money, their mouth to their calendar, to hear the cry of consequences in their relationships so, Father, they can pave the way to influence. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.